Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. If you're hearing this, then you're on the public feed, which means you'll get episodes a week after they come out and you'll hear advertisements. You can get access to the subscriber feed by going to colemanhughes.org and becoming a supporter. This means you'll have access to episodes a week early, you'll never hear ads, and you'll get access to bonus Q&A episodes. You can also support me by liking and subscribing on YouTube and sharing the show with friends and family. As always, thank you so much for your support. Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. My guest today is Paul Bloom. Paul Bloom is a renowned psychologist, professor, and author currently teaching at Yale University and University of Toronto. He's published many books, including Descartes' Baby, How Pleasure Works, Just Babies, Against Empathy, The Sweet Spot, and the topic of today's conversation, Psych, the Story of the Human Mind. In this episode, we'll be discussing a broad summary of the field and findings of psychology, touching on its various branches and exploring the complexities of human behavior. We talk about whether psychology is a real science. We talk about the reality of the unconscious mind. We talk about the legacy of Freud, the advantages of self-delusion. We talk about the hard problem of consciousness. We discuss artificial intelligence and its implication for rival theories of human language and for the future of art. We talk about the potential dangers of AI misalignment. We talk about the definition of intelligence. We discuss nature versus nurture and much more. So without further ado, Paul Bloom. Okay, Paul Bloom, thanks so much for coming on my show. Uh, Thanks for having me here, Coleman. It's good to talk to you. As I just told you offline, I've been a longtime admirer of yours, read many of your books going back, at least in my life, at least six or seven years. So it's it's great to get you on this show. And I've heard you on many podcasts, including The Very Bad Wizards, uh, Sam Harris, and, uh, and, and others. So I think some of my fans will be familiar with you from those books and those podcast appearances. But you, the occasion in this podcast is, is you have a great new book out which is, I think, broader in scope than any of your other books called Psych, which is basically a a summary of all of the solid empirical findings of the science of psychology um, up to the modern day, including some of the history of science story about how psychology has evolved over the past you know, 100 to 200 years or so. So it's a, it's a really big think book that is probably the best introductory book to psychology broadly that I could think of. And it's, it's, uh, it's really, I'm really glad that you were the person uh, to write this kind of book. So I, we won't cover everything in there today, but I can really recommend to my followers go out and buy this book, Psych. Thanks very much. That means a lot. You're right. This is by far the biggest book I've ever written, both sort of physically in size. It's kind of a heavy one. And um, and also in scope. My other books tended to push a particular argument like, uh, you know, the morality of babies or the problems with empathy. This book is meant to, as you say, just cover all of psychology. It's it's not supposed to be a textbook. I, it would kill me to write a textbook. They're boring. They're difficult to read. It, it's It's meant to be a fun way to introduce yourself to, at a pretty high level to everything in psych. So a lot to talk about. So let's just start big picture. Me and my girlfriend have a joke that psychology is a fake science. Uh, She's (laughs) some joke is kind of hurtful. It's more of just a straight up non-funny insult than a joke. But she she comes from a neuroscience background. And and we have grown up in the age of fad psychology of the sort that I talked about in my podcast with Jesse Single a, a while ago of you know, TED Talks demonstrating, 
you know, so-called psychological effects that don't replicate. And in a general background where things like physics, sciences like physics have seem to have just more solid predictive power in some ways uh, compared to the softer sciences like psych. So combine all these factors and one can get the impression that uh, the psych major in, on a college campus is doing something less serious than the physics major. <laughs> I, I rarely start out a, an interview by insulting my entire guests' uh, field. I like that. I like that. But can you say something in, in defense of psychology as a real science with a capital S? Yeah. Um, well, first thing, in, in, in kind of an equally pugnacious mode, we could talk about neuroscience and, uh, and the replication crises that have hit neuroscience and difficulties in that area. But you, you said a lot of tough things about psychology. I think each and every one of them is true. We're certainly not a science in the sense that physics or chemistry is a science. A developed science is enormous theoretical power to explain and predict the world. We're very far from that. We are also an area where there's a lot of hucksters and shams and failures to replicate and poor studies. There's a lot, you know, particularly the sort of psychology that that hits the popular press. A lot of it's terrible. There's enormous motivations to tell people, here's how to cure your mental illness. Here's how to um, be happy. Here's how to succeed at school and work. And these things get blown out of proportion. And most, much of what you hear, say, in a TED Talk, or in a, a popular article shouldn't be trusted. So all of that's true. But I wouldn't have written a book if I believed that the story ended there. I think that psychology, though it suffers from all sorts of problems of replication and the scope of our analyses and so on, has made some extraordinary discoveries. Discoveries that have changed the way we think about the world. Discoveries that have a difference and makes a difference in people's lives. I'll just give two examples. One example from work I've been involved with myself is there's been some striking discoveries about what babies know, suggesting that the story that somebody like Plato or Descartes or Kant would have, where there's built-in inborn knowledge of physical social world, is basically true. The empiricists were wrong. We come into the world with some understanding of it. And a second example I'll give you is memory which is there's a very common sense notion of memory, which is when you remember the world, you have this veridical tape recording of it. And then maybe you, you lose track of it and, and then a, a helpful therapist or, or a competent police investigator will bring it back to you. Turns out it's not true at all. Memory is largely a reconstruction of the world. And so we get, psychologists can easily implant false memories. Most of what you're sure about in the past is, is almost certainly false. And there's good research on that. And I could go on. I could go on to other discoveries. Um, it is a surprise to many people how much of human differences is caused by genes. And it is maybe even more of a surprise how much of human differences is caused by factors out that aren't that are environmental, but don't have to do with the family. So we have our discoveries. We've earned our keep to some extent. Yeah. So I guess let's uh, let, let's sort of talk about some of the major strains of psychological thought, beginning with Freud. You kind of structure the book as a commentary on Freud, a commentary on Skinner, um, a commentary on um, Piaget. Is, I hope I'm pronouncing that right. So let's start with Freud. As you say in the book, Freud is probably the one psychologist that almost everyone listening to this podcast has heard of. And they've heard the words Freudian, and they've probably heard the words Oedipus complex, and they probably have some notion of the Oedipus, Oedipus complex, meaning that men want to kill their fathers and marry their mothers, and the notion of an unconscious mind and the image of a patient leaning back on a couch, having a therapist sort of analyze them. So 
you know, who was Freud and what is his legacy? Was he a crackpot that should be relegated to the dustbin of history? Was he right about everything or is the truth somewhere in between? Yeah, somewhere in between. You know, there, there are friends of mine who look at my book and say, that's a great book. Why'd you waste a chapter on Freud? And at the same time, I get, I get emails saying, you talked about Freud, but you didn't talk about his famous student, Jung. You only didn't devote too much energy to him. Nobody's happy with, with Freud. And my take on Freud is that on the one hand, just about everything he said was false. There's not much evidence in the oral stage and the anal stage and the Oedipus complex and penis envy and all that stuff. That's just, just bogus. His theories of mental illness are um, unscientific and unsupported. He, he, just about everything he said was mistaken. But I think Freud is an extremely important figure. One reason what you mentioned, which is his cultural importance. You know, you just got to know Freud because Freud shaped how a lot of us think about the mind. But another reason is that despite getting everything specific wrong, I think he got the biggest thing right, which is the power of the unconscious. So Freud was not the first to think about the unconscious, but he pushed it to a greater extent than anybody else and made the argument that a lot of our fundamental decisions, what job to do, who we fall in love with, who we hate, who we interact with, is shaped by factors outside of our control. And modern psychologists reject everything else having to do with Freud. But we accept that. I know political psychologists, and they say, we're really interested in why some people voted for Trump and other people voted for Biden. And you might think, well, just ask people, and they'll tell you. But nobody would take that seriously, because they they sort of would say, look, even putting aside the fact people lie, you could be motivated to vote for Trump or Biden for reasons entirely out of your knowledge, out of your control. You might think you voted for the guy for one reason, but actually did it for another. And so too for every other aspect of your life. So that's what Freud got right. In some way, the entire cognitive bias literature, you know, whether these results replicate or not, let's just, you know, for the sake of argument, say they do, the concept that I'm more attracted to the same woman if she's wearing a red dress for some reason. Red is just a sort of magic color in terms of human sexual drives. Or if you're standing on a bridge and and the bridge is swaying back and forth and you have a conversation with someone, you subconsciously mistake your fear of falling off the bridge for an attraction to the person because you know your heart is pumping and, and that makes you more attracted to the same person uh, more than you would be had you just met them on the sidewalk. I mean, all of, can all of that be seen as yet more vindication of the fact that we have an un- unconscious or subconscious mind and that it really does influence our conscious mind and our behavior and decisions and so forth? It could be. I'm kind of, as you know from the book, I'm kind of skeptical about a lot of that implicit priming stuff. It's very, very much in vogue that, you know, you have a vote inside a school that makes you support school policies more. You're, um, you just washed your hands. You're um, more strict about sexual morality. Um, there's a lot, there's so many sexy findings like this. And you're right, they kind of have a Freudian flavor to them where something outside your control, you don't know awareness of has, has, has moved you. I don't think that kind of work holds up. But I think what does hold up is the idea that even for, for, for decisions that might seem deliberative and contemplative, we're often drawn by factors out of our control. And the factors don't have to be, you know, a woman's wearing a red dress or something like that, a funny smell in the room. They, they could be factors from your past. It, I mean, one way to look at it is, you know, suppose I asked you, why do you have podcasts? I'm sure you have an answer. You've been asked that a hundred times. You have an answer to that. And suppose I kind of had a good look at your life and somebody asked me, why does this guy have a podcast? So we both come up with our answers. Common sense says your answer is going to be better than my answer because you really know it's you after all. Freud says that could be wrong. Freud said that you have no privileged access 
And it could possibly be that me or your shrink has a better sense of what you're up to than you yourself. And that's a really humbling notion. I've had experiences in life which vindicate that in the sense of, I can think of off the top of my head in my adult life, two moments where I spontaneously burst into tears for reasons I had no idea about in the moment and only after could piece together. So I'll give one example where my my mother died when I was 18 and it was a very difficult and formative experience for me taking care of her as she got cancer and her body changed and she eventually died. And years later, probably probably 5 years later, I had an experience where for the first time I was taking care of my girlfriend through a health uh, a health scare that she had. And I was very supportive and felt in control of the situation, though it was sort of something of an emergency, not a life-threatening one. And at the end of it, when she got a surgery and everything went well, I just, we were fighting about something totally unrelated. We were having a totally separate fight. And all of a sudden, I just break out into uncontrollable tears absolutely uncontrollable tears. And I realized after the fact that the experience of taking care of her reminded me so much of taking care of my mother. And that's the only explanation for, I'm not a person known to just burst into tears like that, right? And that's, there's one other situation that happened too, but this is, um, I think many people will have similar experiences where an outside perspective has as much information or knowledge about you, or at least could in principle, as you have of as you have of yourself. That's right. And I think that's a deep point. My example is there was an appointment, you know, I was supposed to go to and I missed it. And then I made another reschedule. I put in my calendar very clear. And then the day goes by and I just don't go. Somebody who's close to me says, why don't you want to go to that appointment? And I think, no, I, I want to go to that appointment. It's, it's really, I really want to talk to this person. And I, I finally didn't. And as I think everybody, every sort of contemplative person has always, now this doesn't mean that the sort of more florid Freudian stuff about, oh, you know, no, it's not really you were traumatized by death of your mother, you're in love of your mother. I, I think a lot of that's nonsense. But but you're, it's a nice example of how when you burst into tears, you were, you, there were things going on inside you that you were not at the time aware of. And then only later, and if you, and you might have been a particularly dense person, your girlfriend might have pointed this out. I wonder, this is reminding you of when you took care of your mother. And so, so that, that stuff Freud got, got right. This is, uh, what we're talking about in some way is self-deception, which is, you know, I think a fundamental part of human psychology. And, the, you know, I, I know, you know, Robin Hanson, and I think it was in Kevin Simler's book, The Elephant in the Brain, which is all about self-deception and how ubiquitous it is. Can you talk a little bit about the logic of self-deception? Because naively, I would think it would always be better to know exactly what's in my mind, right? You, you would think that. That would make sense. Yet there are all these situations in everyday life where it's actually better for my self-interest to not know what's going on under my own hood. So what is that about? Yeah. It's it's such a neat it's such a neat set of questions and cuts across philosophy and psychology and all sorts of domains. This comes into why do we have an unconscious in the first place? And the sort of standard answer is well, you have so much so much stuff going on. You can't conscious is a, conscious is a limited resource. It can't take on too much. You know, I could listen to a podcast in one ear. I could listen, but I and I put on a different podcast in the second ear. I could flip back and forth, but my con I just can't absorb them both. I'm, I'm, my powers are limited. But this evolutionary biologist Robert Rivers one of the most creative people in the field, had a better idea. And he said, part of what goes on to keep things unconscious is that it's adaptive. And the logic of the adaptation there is that it helps you deceive people. 
So suppose, suppose we were in a confrontation and I wanted to persuade you that I'm not going to back down. And it was a physical conference, very serious one. Right? Well, how can I best persuade you of that? The answer seems to be for me to honestly believe I'm not going to back down, even if I actually will. Because then you're looking at my face, you're scanning me for lies, you're looking at my emotions, and I am a man who's not going to back down. And because I fooled myself into believing it so. Or, or on the flip side, imagine you want to persuade somebody you're head over heels in love with them. That's the best way to persuade somebody, to really believe that you're head over heels in love with somebody. And so deception could evolve, self-deception could evolve as a trick in order to deceive others. It's kind of like a poker game, which is, you know, suppose I'm bluffing and I have like a two seven offsuit and I have a re- and my face just bleeds out everything I know. What I would love for the moment when I'm facing everybody else is to be confused and think I have two aces. Because then, you know, no one's going to think I'm bluffing, not with this face. And so self-deception is a way to, to fool others. That was Trivers' claim. And Trivers was an evolutionary psychologist. So when he says it's a way to fool others, he doesn't mean it's a way that smart, clever people, a, a mode we click on in order to achieve our goals. He means it's an evolved setting, essentially, that we have and that our ancestors that were better at self-deception or had you know, better settings at self-deception left more of those genes um, in the gene pool. And that's how we came to be how we came to be, right? That's the argument. And, and argument is, that's right. So the argument is, even for non-human animals, you see similar examples. I think he gives the example of, of a, a jackrabbit being chased by a predator and it's bouncing back and forth. And if at any point prior to it moving back and forth, it knew what it was going to do next, it could give it away in its posture and it'd be lunch. So there's some advantages of putting information on a need-to-know basis. For people, the argument is that certain otherwise paradoxical emotional expressions or emotional feelings, like losing your temper or falling head over heels in love, exist partially because they are sort of signals to other people that, that actually persuade other people that you're doing what you're doing, but it works best if you believe it. So in some way, evolution has evolved us from certain confrontations to just lose our temper. And then the other person sees us losing and says, wow, this person really isn't going to back down. Even if under the surface there's some calculations going on where the person says, yeah, if things get, get a bit too heavy, I'm going to go run. And yeah, so Trivers gets that insight. The analogy I thought of when reading this was of basketball crossovers. I don't know if you're a basketball fan at all, but not, not enough. Go ahead. Yeah. But I mean, it it would work in soccer too, I guess, but ankle breakers are a big phenomenon in basketball where I'll fake going to the right convincingly to get my defender to bite and then I'll go left. And if you do this effectively enough, the defender sometimes actually falls down because they've, they can't, they try to switch directions faster than their body allows. And these are like the illicit, the oohs and the ahs. And this is a very coveted moment in basketball. And Allen Iverson was excellent at it, Tim Hardaway. And now there are modern people like um, like James Harden and others who are sort of known for this. But the best crossovers are the ones that are not planned by the person doing it. It's when I had every intention of going to my right to the basket, and then I get blocked and immediately, instantaneously go the other way. So those are really the best crossovers are the ones that are not even planned because those are the most honest signals that, that can't be faked in, in a way. That's right. The best bluff in the world is some poker player who's nearsighted with, with dirty glasses and he looks at his pair of twos and thinks he's holding two aces and, you know, goes all in. And then, and then people who are extremely good at sussing out their intentions look into this guy and say, he has the nuts. He has this great hand. And yeah, exactly. Same. So your example is exactly right. That's the, you, you don't fake right. You really go right with all the intentions of going right. And then something happens. 
So th- this brings up uh, another question, which is about consciousness itself, the hard problem of consciousness and and how to reconcile that with evolutionary psychology. So what we've been talking about here is that we have a conscious mind and an unconscious mind, a mind we're aware of and a mind we, we actually can't sense, but is there. Uh, and one of the great problems in the philosophy of mind is what Chalmer called, uh, David Chalmers called the hard problem of consciousness, which is why there is anything it's like to be a person at all, why there's any feeling or awareness associated with the physical processes of any part of the brain, right? Like we assume that my laptop is not feeling anything, right? That there's no consciousness, there's no awareness in the laptop. But for some reason, when you put neurons together in a certain configuration, the lights come on and there's something it's like to be this collection uh, of cells. But, you know, it would seem from the perspective of evolutionary psychology that consciousness as an adaptation wouldn't be advantageous or or necessary, right? Or at least at one level, right? Like opposable thumbs help us do stuff. Intelligence helps us do stuff. But what does awareness in addition to all the competence get us, right? So do you view the hard problem of consciousness through the lens of EvoPsych as well? And and what do you think the current status of thinking is on that problem? Yeah, it's a good set of questions. And I think you nicely use a phrase like levels. So some notions of consciousness make perfect sense from an adaptive point of view. So what you mean by consciousness is that some bits of information get so you could contemplate them and ruminate them and talk about them and understand what other people talk about. It's, that's what some people mean by it's conscious. Like right now my blood pressure isn't conscious, but, um, but the fact that my microphone's in front of me, that is conscious. I could just tell you about it and tell a story, write it. Now, that makes perfect sense. That's good. For, a communicating animal would want to be able to, to talk about what it's aware of. It, it, it's essential for, for animals to feel pleasure and pain for all sorts of simple adaptive reasons. Like, you know, you burn your hand in a stove, you avoid the stove, you know, food tastes good, so you eat more of it and so on. And it keeps an animal going. But the question that remains is, why does it have to feel like something? Like, why isn't it enough that I touch something and go, ow, ow, and then stay away? But of course, that description is incomplete. There's also the actual physical feeling of it, the pain, the pleasure of, of, of having, you know, eating and eat eating some ice cream when you, when it's a hot day out and you're hungry, you know, holding your newborn against your chest, you know, the first kiss, slamming your hand in the car door. These all have what philosophers call qualia. And where does that come from? And the way you frame it is, is kind of a common answer, which might be right. It comes from neurons. You get the neurons piled up in just the right way, the glial cells, the blood rushing, and out comes consciousness. And another way of putting it is when the computations become of a certain sort, then you get consciousness. And this is, of course, is a matter of actual real importance as computers get smarter and smarter. So I don't think my the GPT-4 that I run on my computer and use it to, to write funny limericks and everything, I don't think it's conscious. But at a certain point, when it starts getting, say, smarter than I am, and is eloquent and seemingly empathic and understanding, and I'm talking to it, I'm talking to it like I'm talking to you. I'm talking to you, I assume you're conscious. Now, you made it of flesh and blood, so that's a good inference. But there may be a point where, where we're almost forced to at least confront the question of, can a computer not made out of flesh be conscious? And I don't have the foggiest idea what the answer will be. 
Yeah, I was, I remember being influenced by Colin McGinn's book um, on this, where he basically says that when the brain tries to understand itself, it's going to reach a limit. And you, you make kind of reference to a similar idea in the book, which is that we might, there might be some mysteries that our brain as a tool is ill-suited to actually solving um, because we just actually can't grok it. We can't understand it. Much like chickens can't understand calculus, right? Presumably there may be questions we can ask but can't answer because they're ill-posed or they're, we're just not actually the kinds of creatures that could even understand the answer if we heard it. I mean, and more and more, I think consciousness is that kind of problem, the hard problem that is. He gets, he gets the idea from Chomsky who distinguishes puzzles from mysteries and puzzles are like really hard. Like, you know, I don't know, how does gravity work? And, and um, how, do you, how do you build a machine to go as fast as light? Or how do you do that? And they're really, really good and, and, and it might take centuries. But you know what you're up to. You know what the problem is. You know what it means to solve it. For consciousness, a lot of people would argue that we don't even know what an explanation would look like. It connects to questions, similar question, but free will and so on. So, so Chomsky, and followed by McGinn, believes that the funny feeling we get when we have no idea is the feeling that a calculus gets when looking at the, the feeling that a chicken gets when looking at a calculus text, you know, it's just, it's not, it, it's just beyond our powers. Now, I don't know. I mean, I, I certainly think that's true. We're finitary beings. We're not angels. And so there's going to be some problems that are just too hard for us. You know, if there's problems that are too hard for a chicken and problems that are too hard for a dog, there's going to be problems that are too hard for a human. Though one could wonder how we do supplemented by the proper AI. But I just think as a sort of a strategy, you got to keep plugging away. And you know, sometimes it could be surprising. You might be able to solve something. Yeah. So let's pivot a little bit. We've talked about Chat GPT or GPT four now, and and Noam Chomsky. And this brings a set of questions that I've been thinking about, and many have been thinking about in the past few months, as we've had so many revelations with first GPT, Chat GPT three point five, and and so forth. Where now we've now encountered an artificial intelligence that that just can speak and understand English as well as, you know, the large majority of, of English speakers. I think that's now undeniable, though some have tried to deny it, I think. And, and in fact, a few weeks ago, there was an article by none other than Noam Chomsky, the father of modern linguistics, in which he, he, he seemed to allege that chat GPT could not answer certain kinds of questions. And then almost within minutes, people Pose those question, questions to ChatGPT, and it did a very good job of of answering them. So, and I I suspect this was because ChatGPT refutes certain aspects of of some some of Chomsky's ideas, and I think you'll you'll be able to explain to me if that's true. My broader question here is: Does ChatGPT, a GPT four, its extraordinary proficiency with language, does it change? or challenge any long-held beliefs about how humans acquire language? Does it in any way inform the long-standing debates on how human beings acquire language? I think it does. I'll, I'll say, you know, I, was, I, was, uh, I went to graduate school at MIT. I took courses with Chomsky. My dissertation was on language development from very much of a Chomsky perspective. I have um, enormous respect for his work. And though I, I thought the New York Times article was, was pretty bad. It was very glib and dismissive. So there are a couple of debates here. One debate, and this Gary Marcus is very engaged in it, is whether or not the sort of fact that these things work by deep learning, by prediction, mean that they're going to fall apart at a certain level. 
They don't create models of the world. They don't have symbolic structure. They don't have logical structures. There are certain things that in the end they won't be able to do. And it's hard to see them because they're trained on so many examples. In fact, the very examples that people use as counterexamples to say GPT-3 end up as part of a training set for GPT-4. So we could be a, a bit less impressed that it can handle them well. It's kind of somewhat as teaching to the test. But to answer your question, I think it does. There's, there's an argument that Chomsky and Chomskyans used to make, which is that there's some aspects of language that we possess that could not be learned unless we have innate language-specific structures. And yet, these large language models seem to possess, seems to have the knowledge without the innate structure. It seems to be an existence proof. You give it enough data, it'll just figure it out. On the other hand, and here's where I'm skeptical, three-year-olds, four-year-olds learn to talk with amazing fluidity and a deep grasp of language and all sorts of subtle knowledge and everything. And they didn't get, I don't know what is, 50 billion sentences from the internet in order to do so. They get a much smaller data set. It's not clear then that it might, put this way, it might be that there's two ways to learn language, the way humans do, which will work on a very small data set and does involve innate structure, and the way these models do, which involves no innate knowledge, but an enormous amount of data. And if that's true, then the models don't refute, don't, don't bear directly on the theory of how people do it. So is that what you would favor right now that they're, we're just learning there's a whole nother way to learn languages? Yeah, I think so. I, th I think at minimum, what we've learned is that these large statistical models are capable of learning and commanding domains that in some ways that bear no resemblance to how people do it. So we know how people learn chess. You, somebody gives you the rules, you practice something, you get better and better and better. There's no relationship to how these models learn chess. We know how people learn um, learn how to do uh, multiplication. You know, two times you learn it. The twelve times tables, you get better. You carry this. You do this. And that. Those machines learn to multiply in an entirely different way. So it seems as if there's another way to do things out there. Yeah, I think one way of seeing that is seeing the kinds of mistakes humans make versus the kind kinds of mistakes AIs make. This has been one of the frustrating elements of the conversation on ChatGPT is people point out all the mistakes it makes, but won't point out all the kinds of mistakes human beings make, right? They'll, they'll point those mistakes out as if they're a rejoinder to the idea that this has achieved a certain human level competence at, at language. When humans make all kinds of mistakes, right? We make spelling errors, which, you know, if, if GPT were making, folks would be pointing that out. We make errors of logic all the time. I mean, there are whole fields dedicated to the reasoning errors that we make and that, you know, so, and, and you could say the same about, even the same about chess. You know, I'm, I'm like a, I'm a, a chess fanatic and, you know, on chess.com, they will have bots that are, you know, not the strongest, but are kind of tailored to be mid-level bots, but they don't play like mid-level humans. What they do is they play perfectly six moves in a row and then make an absolutely idiotic mistake that no human would make really even a even a much worse human wouldn't make whereas humans make different much more human kinds of mistakes and so and yet you know a bot can be a, as good as magnus carlson so there can be different paths towards the same level of competence at a skill and that may be part of what we're learning here yeah i think i agree i think there's sort of a bad argument and a good argument like you pointed out the bad argument say oh my gosh you know chad gpt made a mistake let's trash the whole thing let's make fun of the whole thing a self-driving car got into an accident oh let's don't use them at all this is, when it comes to practical usage those are the wrong arguments to make you have to compare it to people you know i 
if it turns out that self-driving cars, you know, cause an accident one out of every million times they're on the road and people cause an accident one out of 50,000 times, you just go for the proportions. You go, what's safer? So the mere existence of mistakes. Right now, there's countless millions of people playing with these AIs and everybody who finds a mistake goes on Twitter to talk about it. You know, think how many mistakes people. So that's the bad argument. The good argument is the mistakes they make seem to be of a different character than the mistakes people make. And from a sort of scientific point of view, that sense, that's interesting. That suggests they're doing things differently. You had a nice chess example. I heard um, uh, this, this guy, I think it was Stuart Russell, give a Go example, where apparently there's a machine, there's a ferocious uh, AI Go player that can be fooled using extremely simple tactics that just, I, I don't know enough Go, but just put, like, put a wall around something and just it falls apart. If you just do exactly the right thing, in a way, nobody at that level would fall apart. And as a psychologist, I find it interesting. I'm interested in people, but I'm also interested in how these strange entities work. And the differences strike me as really cool. Okay, so another question about AI and and artists. And this is brought out to me by by your, your book on how pleasure works. This is from many years ago now. But you had this thesis in that book that humans are essentialists with regard to pleasure, which explains why, for example we will pay millions of dollars for an original Vermeer, but very little money for a literal atom-for-atom replica, right? In terms of physics, these are replicas. They are perfect replicas. And so if it were just about the pleasure that I'm getting from atoms arranged in this way and the, the pure beauty of the painting... I shouldn't care, but I do care, right? And and that's because we feel, well, Vermeer touched this one, right? And that imbues it with some essence, et cetera. And there's a lot of things you can't understand if you don't understand that principle in, in life. And and so I, I wonder about how, what this means for the future of, of art, because we are in the age now where Midjourney and Dolly 2 have proven, I think, that AIs can create art at a human level certainly can create art better than I can, actually better than most humans can, and as good as professional artists. And that's only going to get better. Music right now is lagging a little bit behind visual art, in my opinion, but I think it's very close. It's, it's going to be very close. Music, large language models, and, and so forth. I'm curious if, if, um, if you would project 10, 20 years in the future when music... It may not be that long. When music can really make the next Drake song exactly as good or, or better than Drake, meaning Drake didn't get in the studio. All you did was put a line of text into a program and it came out with the next Drake or the next Kanye or the next Harry Styles song, every bit as good. Are people going to be interested in that product, knowing that it wasn't the hand of Harry Styles or Drake or whatever that, that created it? Yeah. I mean, right now, everyone's going to Dolly and similar things that, you know, get me a painting of, you know, Donald Trump in New York in the style of Picasso. Any new Picasso's out. And um, I, I wonder to the extent this will even happen in literature. You know, I like Richard Russo. I like his short stories. Make me another one. Make me 10. You know, I think that there'll be tremendous interest in this. And it should be fascinating to have new albums by Drake that aren't by Drake, but but such that no, you can't tell. 
And I don't think I don't think we're very far from from that. But the question now is, what will we think about? And I think you're right. I think there's a whole lot of, of research, as well as sort of common sense observation, that finds that the source really matters. And we're going to downgrade uh, contributions that are not made by people because they're machine made. They're less intimate. They're less personal. And uh, and so you could imagine in the future, most com- most any sort of writing competition or artistic competition that's blind to uh, to the contributors would say, AI, no AI allowed. We just want people. Um, and this shows up all over the place. I've been reading about, about uh, online therapy. And the claim is, which I'm a bit skeptical about, is GPT does pretty good therapy. But I don't think people are very happy. And there's some research that once they discover that their therapist is, uh, is a line of code, not many lines of code. So yeah, authenticity is going to take an ex- going to become extremely important. If I had to invest in a word for the next decade, that would be the word because distinguishing human creations from AI creations, and also, and this is I talking to Sam Harris about this, also the case of of um, all the deep fakes that that AI could easily create. There's going to be such a premium on some way of marking things that this is real. This actually happened. This was not a creation. Yeah, I mean, if I use the chess example, I think chess is useful because AI has been ahead of humans for many decades now. And so we've seen the practical consequences of that. And one is people do not invest nearly as much time or money in watching Stockfish play, which is the best AI, as they do Magnus Carlsen, who is much worse than Stockfish. It's not that there's no interest in Stockfish games. There actually is, but it's several orders of magnitude less than the best human players. I was going to ask you, that fits my estimation. People would care more about watching who's the best person alive playing chess and who's the best program alive. Right. I mean, at, at any given time, there's a whole Twitch account dedicated to playing the best versions of various different... It's a, it's a computer competition, an AI chess competition between different AIs, and it operates 24 hours a day because they don't get tired. Right? And I've watched... I've spent probably an hour and a half of my life watching it. And at no point does it really have more than 100 or 150 viewers. Whereas if Hikaru Nakamura boots up his laptop and streams, he will have easily 20 to 30,000 on any given day. So I think that if that, insofar as that's a good earmark for where things are going, I think that will probably hold true to some extent for music and literature. And it's also reassuring because there were predictions when, when really good chess computers came out, this is going to kill chess. No one's going to care anymore once the best person can be beaten by any, any good AI. And apparently interest in chess has gone up. People think about imaginative variants and using AI to improve their games and so on. So this, you might have a similar thing where, you know, music and literature, poetry, whatever, where either there's sort of, we put, put that all aside and let humans, we're interested in what the people do, or people use AI to facilitate, to get better at it. I don't know how many, I don't know how many musicians, I mean, you should, you, you know more than me. Do, do, do people in music use AI to help? So I have a friend right now who is a producer. He makes sort of the beats and the music behind songs, the under the structure, basically. And he has begun using two different AIs that will essentially flesh out an idea that he has. So he'll have a simple idea. He'll put in the basic melody, say. He'll put it into the AI, and then the AI will come up with you know, a B section to that A section, right? It'll, it'll supplement. And often he'll find, okay, sometimes it's not so good, but sometimes it actually gave me an idea with a small tweak it, it could cut your work time in half on creating a song, or it could just generate lots of decent ideas that help you generate "quote unquote" original ideas. Um, so it's just like it's like having a tireless assistant in a way, and it, the assistant may not be a genius, but it's tireless. 
So that's worth, that's really worth something. I'm, um, I'm writing an article right now and, um, and I'm tr- playing around with, uh, with the open AI GPT-4 to say, you know, here's the first couple of paragraphs. Give me a couple more paragraphs along these lines, you know, make that review this literature. It's very tempting. You just get, get a lot of words on a page that way. The minus is it hallucinates. So it makes up, you know, it makes up citations. It makes up, if something sounds cool, it puts it in. So you have to be extremely careful with this. Yeah, totally. Um, but again, you know, human beings hallucinate false memories and, and all the rest. I've, I've hallucinated things that I thought that I read or things that I thought someone said. And so there's that. It's fair enough. In some way, this, this blurring of the past is one way in which these AIs are surprisingly human, you know, and, and one way I've seen this put is it's almost a form that the prime directive of many of these things is basically make the user happy. So, so I was writing something and I said, give me, um, I'd like some quotes. This is when I was writing about replication crisis, action, psychology. I'd like some quotes from some prominent people on how psychology is a disaster because of replication crisis. So it had a quote from, from uh, Nassim Taleb and a quote from Gert Gerinch. They were perfect quotes. The, the Taleb one was rude and, and, and obscene and spicy. The Gerinch one was more thoughtful, but kind of very angry. And, and I'm thinking, this is great. And then I look them up and neither of them existed. It just gave me just what I wanted. That's funny. So, I mean, on that note, many people, especially in the sort of rationalist community, have worried that AI is going to take over the world. Elon Musk and others have famously signed a a request to put AI on pause for six months to prevent a world takeover. You know, whether that world takeover occurs because you know, the AI, be, you know, actually wants to take over the world, becomes conscious and like an sort of super intelligent evil human might do, engineers of the world, you know, like the, like the plot of a very good science fiction movie, or whether it's the more Nick Bostrom idea where the AI really has no ill will, no evil intent whatsoever, but we ask ChatGPT, or, or some future version of, of GPT to do some task such as, you know, eliminate suffering in the world. And it does that by killing every person in, in an honest attempt, but it just doesn't understand certain common sense human notions because it has a sort of machine-like intelligence. Um, do you worry about these scenarios at all, given your, your observation that chat GPT at some level seems to, each iteration is built to please us more and more at, at some level because we're creating it. So do you worry about these scenarios? You know, I heard Sam Harris give a talk a while ago about AI risk. And he said, the funny thing about AI risk is you look at these other risks and of nuclear war and pandemics and global starvation and everything. They sound horrible. AI risk is so cool that it makes it difficult to sort of feel it's so science fiction-y and everything. I I don't worry as much as most people, mainly because I find it hard to see sort of exactly what happens that leads to so much trouble. You know, I can't imagine somebody linking chat GPT to, you know, give it the ability to launch nuclear warheads and then see what happens. You know, so what harm can it do? And the answer is you can put it on social media and it can do harm that way. But having said that, I'm convinced that the odds of it doing something really bad are what, like 5, 10%. And those are huge odds. So I don't know whether the response to it is shut it down for six months. I'm not part of the problem there is not every country in the world is going to do the same shutdown. So so there may be somewhat of a race here. So I just don't know. I'm fairly agnostic, but I don't think the shutdown people are being unrealistic. I think they're just taking very seriously 
small risks. What do you think? Well, I've paid attention to both sides of this debate. And I think over time, I've come to see the critics like Steve Pinker and Kevin Kelly and Robin Hansen as as having persuasive criticisms. So to take, I guess, two criticisms. One, I think, is, you know, the, the idea... The idea that it's going, that an AI will ever have a kind of urge to dominate or an urge to oppress or, or even something as simple as an urge to survive its own termination is, is falsely attributing to it human motives. And this, and, um, I mean, the, the reason humans have an instinct to survive is because we evolve by natural selection. There's nothing about intelligence that is, inherently connected to the will to survive, right? It just so happens that the same process, evolution, built both of them into us. There's no reason a machine would have that unless we programmed programmed it into uh, it. And so, so that's sort of the easier one, I think, to knock down. And I think to be fair to the other side, I think fewer of them are compelled by that disaster scenario than by the misalignment scenario. And and there, there I'm less sure of what's what's worth worrying about. But I think Pinker and Hansen, or certainly Pinker would say, by definition, if we've made something super intelligent, that intelligence will include understanding our implicit instructions, right? Understanding that eliminate suffering in the world does you know, that that we also mean don't kill us, right? It will, it will, if insofar as it's super intelligent, it will, intelligence just is understanding all of those unspoken desires and commands, right? So, I mean, and, and that's agnostic on whether we actually can build true, like general super intelligence. That might be a concept that, it might be an ill-posed concept in that intelligence, what we think of that as intelligence might be, oh, well, this is, this, is a, this is a question I'll put to you. What is intelligence? Like, what is this? Is this is intelligence a knob that everyone has at a certain level measured by something like IQ? And in theory, the knob could just be cranked all the way to the right. Or is it a collection of, you know, sub skills, modules built into us by evolution that sometimes all correlate in, quote unquote, very intelligent people? What is intelligence? So there's a lot going on here. I, I To answer your last question first, I think intelligence really is better thought of as a bunch of separate knobs that can be turned, separate capacities that have different neurological ar- architecture, different developmental origins, different evolutionary origins. The sort of intelligence that goes into being good at math is a different intelligence than being able to manipulate and understand people, which is different from being good with words. It so happens with people, there's sort of an intercorrelation between these intelligences. So you call them IQ or G, which is, you know, some people, somebody who's like 120 tends to be good at all of these. Someone who's 80 tends to be not, not as good on all of these. But it's an important question to ask because a lot of people talking about AI talk about it as if, you know, oh my God, it now has an IQ of 90. You know, in a week, it'll have 95, it'll have 100, and then it's going to zip right past us. And then it'll have, and then, and then it will crush us. And that's not the right way to see it. And in fact, we already know it's not the right way to see it because apparently ChatGPT4 does um, does really well at LSATs and SATs and the medical exam, much better than any person can do at all. Of, you know, so does that mean it's already much smarter than us? Well, I've dealt with it. And, you know, it's very smart at answering certain questions and also in some other ways, incredibly stupid and unimaginative. You see the sort of disconnect between different sorts of intellectual abilities versus others. 
I will, however, disagree a little bit with something you mentioned and attributed to, to Pinker and Hansen and so on, which is it's true that these AIs don't have, don't typically have any desire for self-preservation wired into them. You know, that really isn't, that, that, it's magical thing to think that just being smart comes with it. My calculator is really smart at math. It doesn't have any self-preservation instinct. However, if you give an intelligent being a goal, whatever the goal is, unless the goal is kill yourself, implicit in this is survive. And there's actually been simulations finding that AIs doing simple goals will stare at a trouble and try to keep alive because their survival is necessary in order to do the goals. So you may end up with an AI with a sort of fairly strong desire to live and not get shut off and not get destroyed just because it's in the service of another goal, which is made a perfectly reasonable goal. All right. So let's uh, let's pivot from the artificial intelligences back to the, uh, well, the real ones. I'm not even sure that that, that naming is correct. The natural yeah, ones. Yeah, the natural ones. You know, the nature versus nurture is a, is a perpetual question and curiosity that people have. To what extent are my traits, my attributes, my personal personality, my competency, my skill, to what extent was that a function of the genes I was given at birth? And to what extent was that a product of the environment I grew up in as a kid? To what extent is it a product of just hard work and, and sweat equity, as people would say? What, uh, how do you answer that question based on the best evidence we have? So there's not, it's an important question, but it's just actually, it's just two important questions. One can ask the question concerning universals that all humans have. So I'm interested in language acquisition. We can ask, what's the relative role of innate biological machinery and environment learning language? And we know it has to be both. And, you know, bricks and dogs don't learn language. So plainly it has to do with the fact we have human brains. But if you're raised in Seoul, you'll learn you know, Korean, if you're raised in Florence, you'll learn Italian, your environment plain determines what language you learn. So some sort of comp very complicated combination. The question you're asking is subtly different. And it's a question a lot of people come to ask, which is forget about universals. What about differences between us? Maybe you're more extrovert than I am. Maybe I'm more agreeable than you are. And you know, the personality different. Okay. Um, some people are straight, some are gay, some some are neither. Some um, some people are very very intelligent, very verbally gifted. Others aren't. Some people are good at math. Where does that come from? And that's the business of behavioral genetics, which and it has some surprising findings. So one of which I mentioned before is genes matter for every every trait you could imagine. Every trait that allows for variance, genes matter for anything about your your about you which differs across people. How quick you are to anger, how quick you are to tears, your 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 sense of humor, whatever. If I could get your bio data from your biological mother and biological father, their own traits, I could extrapolate to yours with reasonable uh, uh, success, um, even if they never raised you. Just like if I have to ask, if I look at how tall you are or how strong you are, looking at your biological parents, you get some, some sense of it. Some, it's heritable. So that's like, and then people say on average, it's like 50%. And it so happens 50% is about right. It depends, depends what you're asking for. So some traits are highly heritable. Um, others are much less heritable. Um, but then where does the rest come from? Well, this is not, if it's not genes, it's environment. But environment covers so many different things. It covers um, what your mother was eating when you were in her womb. It covers whether you're bullied at school. It covers whether, whether your parents read to you. It covers um, what the language people spoke around you. And the big debate is determining what aspects of what in, of the environment play what role. And the big finding is, and you've, I'm sure you've heard this before, even the people you talk to, is surprisingly how people are raised matters less than you'd expect for their personality and intelligence. 
If it mattered a lot, for instance, you'd expect adopted kids into a family to turn out pretty much the same as their biological uh, the biological kids, as their siblings. But they don't tend to. They tend to be quite different in their personality and their abilities. This doesn't mean genes are 100%. They aren't. But it means that the environment that molds us, a lot of it seems to come from outside the family. So when you say outside the family, are we talking you know, the school, the peers, the wider culture, television. Are we talking about, you know, do we know what aspects of that, I guess, would be called the non-shared environment? Do we know what aspects of that are doing the, are, are pulling the lever in terms of the environmental component of how people turn out? Or is it just sort of the sum total of everything that's not your parents and household. So it's by definition the sum total. But then, of course, you could ask your question, sure, but what plays a role? And um, I think the answer is nobody knows. A lot of people believe, and Judith Rich Harris, who's an independent scholar who wrote The Nurture Assumption, got a lot of this argument going, argued its peers. So the idea is that how much determines how dominant a person is? Well, genes in part. But where's the rest? Well, in peer groups, sometimes people are at the top, sometimes people are at the bottom. And that sort of, that sets you up for the rest of your life. So that's the hypothesis. And there's a logic to it, an evolutionary logic. Your personality should be shaped by people around you. There's not a huge amount of evidence for it. And remember, the non-shared environment could be anything. It could be, you know, gamma rays. It could be, you know. It could be a random thing that happened to you when you were seven and not your sister. Exactly. And all we know, so all of these measures of behavioral genetics and um, and the more sophisticated measures where they just look at a bunch of genomes or segments of genomes from a million people and just do math on them are good at parceling out what's the factor of the genes and what's the environment. They aren't good at figuring out how the environment does its trick. And they also aren't good at figuring out how the genes do their trick. So it's very tempting to say, you say you find a genetic contribution to people who end up going to Ivy League schools versus who don't. And you say, oh, wow, those genes wire up people's brains to make them smarter, say. But that by no means follows. For instance, if it's easier to get an Ivy League school if you're obedient and non-rebellious and don't get into trouble and, and pay and strength. Maybe the genes code for, for docility or agreeableness. If, if it's easier to get an Ivy League school if your skin is one shade versus another, maybe the genes code for skin shade. So, so, the, so genes can have their power, but through all sorts of ways. So that it would work one way in one society and another way in another society. Yeah, so I just did my 23andMe. I just got my results like two weeks ago. And I don't know, have you done that? I haven't. You're the second person I spoke to who just had it, and I think I'm going to do it. Any surprises? Yeah, well, so no surprises in terms of my ancestry. I'm pretty much ex- almost exactly what I would have predicted given my knowledge of where my mother, mother and father are from. But they have this whole health section where they give you just dozens and dozens of your variant of a gene and, you know, for, for instance, one was that, you know, 67% of people who have my variant of this gene are unafraid of public speaking. Whereas, you know, 33, the other 33% are, are afraid of public speaking. 33% of people with my variant are afraid and vice versa for the other variant. So I can read into this, oh, this, this gene is the reason that I'm so comfortable being a podcaster and people ask me to speak from time to time. And I, I genuinely don't get too much stage fright. Um, I get I get a little bit, but you know it defies belief for me to think that one gene could really have a deep causal connection to public speaking specifically, rather than something much more general or or something. In any case, I find it very hard to believe that this one gene is actually quote unquote the public speaking gene. I think we know enough to know that that's not how genetics works. And yet, on the other hand, it got a few things very wrong about me. 
the most surprising of which was that it got my asparagus pea thing wrong, which is, I think, yeah, I don't know if everyone knows this, but some people, when you eat asparagus, your pea smells extremely weird and extremely pungent. It's very noticeable. And for other people, it just smells normal. For me, I get the pungent odor every time I eat asparagus. It's impossible to ignore. But genetically, I, I don't have the variant that 23andMe says predicts this. I have the other variant, which either means they're just very wrong or it's governed by like lots of different genes, which that seems like the paradigm case of something that would be just one gene. I, that's that's more plausible to be some sort of amino acid gets tripped or something like that. But like public speaking, the idea of a gene for public speaking is ridiculous. So anything, well, first thing, there's not going to be anything evolved for public speaking. It would for a bunch of traits involving like, you know, more sociability, lack of social phobia and so on. And it's not going to be a gene. So there's these three laws of behavioral genetics that Eric Turkheimer developed. But then recently people come up with a fourth law, which is that any interesting human trait is going to be on the command of hundreds, more likely thousands of genes. There's no gene for intelligence, gene for courage, gene for schizophrenia. Rather, there's going to be a cluster of genes, each contributing a fraction of 1%, but they are, or for height for that matter. There's no gene that tells you how tall you're going to be. It's just a bunch of genes that all work on your body in different ways, together giving rise to height. And that's kind of interesting. It's, it's interesting for studies to try to explore the genetic base or different categories. It's also, I think, it throws a little bit of cold water on genetic engineering claims. So, you know, if you want to genetically engineer your kid to be smarter, don't imagine you're going to be tweaking one little gene. It's that you're tweaking a thousand genes, you know, and you also don't know what other things they code for. So a, a friend and I were having this discussion recently, and you, you just referenced this, that we share on average 50% of our genes with each parent and which and with each full biological sibling and i think that number if i'm correct halves as you get to, to grandparents and to half siblings and so for aunts but that's that's an average right which means you could share less than half your genes with a parent or a sibling um, based on how the I, I forget what the process is called when the dna kind of scrambles in each in each sperm cell and I'm tempted to say mitosis or mitosis, but yeah. I could cry again. Or There's some like randomization that goes on in there. Yeah. There's a random shuffle. There's a random shuffling uh, of, of the DNA. So, but I'm not aware of like, what is the range of, of uh, likelihood? Is it that like, uh, what's the bell curve on how much ge- genetic material people, like two siblings share, for example? Is it like, does it go from one to 99% or from 25 to 75? Do you know that? There's enough genes that when you're going to do the math, you, sh- you shouldn't end up like 99% your father and 99% your mother. It's just you're flipping a bunch of coins. And so it should come out um, like for the most part, enough coins, it should come up 50-50. So, but rather than have any knowledge, I have an anecdote. A friend of mine who I talked to about 23andMe, I talked to him like last week, actually another another podcaster guy, says uh, he got his ancestry and his sister took it too. And her ancestry was different. But it was just because his parents are of different ancestry and she got more or less from the mother versus the father. So it's like, it might've been like 55%, 45% for one of them and 50-50 for the other. So yeah, you could, one, there, there are many reasons why you're different from your sibling, but but one of them is you just get a different mix, a different mix with possibly different proportions. Okay, so let's pivot to um, to happiness. Presumably, this is something that psychology would have something to say uh, about. I mean, so, I mean, I guess my first question is, as as an expert in psychology, do you feel 
do you feel any of the insights of psychology have made you happier? Like by, by implementing your knowledge, has any of this knowledge led to greater happiness for you specifically? I think I may have become happier through reading some more philosophically motivated books um, and sources, most of them which say, don't worry too much about happiness, like books about stoicism and, um, and sources about meditation and arguments about flow by Csikszentmihalyi, which is very much of a non-happiness sort of thing. The answer is, is no. I feel that um, I haven't really benefited from psychological literature on happiness. On the other hand, and just to go back to your original cynicism, I think psychologists have discovered some interesting things about happiness. You can decide how useful they are. One, I'll just tell you a few. One of them is obvious, which is happiness uh, goes up with money up to a point. It'd be so strange if that weren't true, since money, you know, buys you food and safety and free time and travel and and good medical care in a lot of places and so on. Of course, there's a diminishing returns. You know, once you have um, $100,000, another $5,000 isn't going to make much of a difference. But if you have $20,000, make a huge difference. Common sense. Some things which aren't common sense. What's not common sense is that happiness uh, over age shows a U-shaped curve. A real surprise. So a guy your age, you're still pretty happy. You're going to be dropping on average till you get to your mid-50s. Till you, till you get, wait, 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 good story. Till you get to your mid-50s. And then you start to creep up again and say, you, by the time you're, you're like in your 80s, it could well be the happiest years of your life. Interesting. Yeah. Well, why do you think that is? You know, so it's not very intuitive because we know happiness correlates with health and 80-year-olds are in poor health. Happiness very strongly correlates with status. When you get really old, you don't get much status. I don't know. I'm tempted sort of more pop cultural explanations like um, David Brooks talks about the two mountains. He says, when you're young, you're aspiring for status, maybe for sex, for money, for power. You get a bit older, a certain age, a sort of second hump. You're looking at relationships, friendships, meaningful acts, eulogy virtues, he calls them. And uh, maybe they're more connected to happiness. So one finding about happiness is, my friend Dan Gilbert said, this is number one finding, is the biggest correlation with happiness is good personal relationships. They did a study once of the happiest people in the world. They just took this, they do all these big survey studies. The people who from a scale of one to 10 said, I'm a nine or 10 out of happiness. From a scale of daily enjoyment said, I'm 10 out of 10. And they said, what do these people have in common? And some of it is they're pretty rich, they're healthy, they're, they don't smoke, they're curious, they're this, they're, but also they say they have people in their lives who love them, that they're in regular contact with, they feel respected, they care for others and are cared for by others. It might be then to go back to the answer of your question, which is for many old people, not all of many old people, they have family connections, they have friend connections. And then they nurture those instead of the mad dash that maybe younger people get into to make more money, travel, have more experiences, more hookups, more whatever. That's interesting. Uh, so, I mean, there, there are a few questions that brings. One is this question of hedonic adaptation, which I think uh, is a, it's a concept many people will be familiar with, but I think is under discussed because it's, it's just... It's so profound when you think about its implications. It's like we spend so much time pursuing pleasure, but our our internal bar for what gives us pleasure changes often along with our success at getting that pleasure. And you could, I mean, I, I'm thinking of Disney World just because I, I just went there over the past weekend with my friend's family who he has small children. And I was thinking about the rides that were available to me when I was their age, which would have been 20 years ago. Not that long, but like the Tron ride, for example, one of the best roller coaster experiences I've had. And they went on the rides that I liked as a kid and they were very bored by them. 
right? Because they have ex- they have exposure to these much better rides. It's a treadmill effect where we can make a lot of progress, but not actually move the needle on how much we are enjoying something. And I, you know, another example for some reason I always think of is how fun it was to stay up late when I was a kid and wasn't allowed to, right? Like if there was one night a year, I got to stay up till 11 p.m. This was like magical to me. And once I was able to do that, all of a sudden it meant nothing. Uh, and, and so many things in life are like this. We, you know, we chase something that moves farther and farther away as we chase it. I mean, what is the, what is the proper response as a human being to the fact of hedonic adaptation, right? Like what is, how should we, should we stop pursuing things or, or should we just understand that we are wired to pursue things that are going to, uh, that aren't going to satisfy us when we get them. And we have to just accept that we're on this sort of treadmill and just keep running. That's a good question. I read this crazy book. I won't tell you what the book is. I want a crazy book Guy, by a psychologist described a hedonic treadmill. It says, you know, I was kind of married to my wife and, you know, we'd be intimate. We'd do time. Kind of got less fun, less interesting, a bit boring, a bit boring. I got a new wife. That's kind of made it more interesting. That got boring too. So I began taking on multiple partners. Pretty soon, that kind of got a bit like, and so he's going through this kind of phantasmagoria of increasing variety and trying to outrun the treadmill. It's this wonderful, this wonderful image, but I don't think in the end that's going to work. I think in the end, you will, you will simply burn yourself out and run out of earthly pleasures, and then where will you be? So there's all sorts of strategies to get around it. You can restrict your pleasures. If there's a, if there's a really good ice cream treat that you enjoy, don't eat it every day. If there's a musical band you really like to listen to, don't always have it playing on your headphones. You get sick of it. You will hold back. You know, the, the, the advice for a couple sex life is, is obvious from this perspective. Space everything out. Just kind of takes a lot of willpower, but this is a way to stretch out hedonic experiences. The other approach, which I think is the right one, and I actually wrote another book called Sweet Spot, where I made, kind of made the case for this in more detail, is to say happiness in a hedonic sense, pleasure, uh, seeking out pleasure. It's great, but it's just one part of a life well lived. There are other things in life that give rewards that are different from hedonic awards. And so don't suffer so much from, from the treadmill. Like think about training for a marathon, not running it, but training for it. Not, none of it's fun in a simple sense, but there's a feeling of satisfaction as you get better and better. Relationships, a good, a good long friendship, good long love affair, romance. The excitement might fade, but it has other values. Raising children. So in some way, the answer is give up a little bit on, on the hedonic aspects of life. I think uh, I'm thinking again about this sort of U-shaped curve and our efforts to extend our lives. I mean, there's a lots, lots of money and time invested in figuring out how to get human beings just to live longer. And I think almost insofar as you have a good quality of life as an old person, pretty much everyone would argue that it's better to live longer, right, on almost any any philosophy of happiness. I'm interested in why there isn't more effort uh, devoted to figuring out how to make experiencing a typical day feel longer, right? Sort of extending life from the inside out. And there is a short passage of your book where you talk about the subjective experience of time, right? And um, I I think it was Julia Galef who I had on this podcast uh, a while ago who made an observation that's always stuck with me, which is that she she often goes on small vacations and and notices when she's on vacation that time slows down a little bit and that therefore going on vacation effectively is a way of extending your life at some in, in some way whether or not that's true for for everyone it does seem like there is something to 
your, you know, how you experience time moment to moment. You know, if you smoke weed, you find time slows down, or if you do another drug, it speeds up. It seems like this is something that maybe, maybe can be manipulated. And to the extent we care about extending the life, we should, there should be some interest in, you know, how do you make your typical day seem longer without it becoming more boring? Is that possible? Is that a crackpot line of... <laughs> I think that's a great question. I mean, I mean, you gave away the punchline of the answer, which is, I don't know if you've ever read Catch-22. I read a long time ago, but, um, but one of the characters who was terrified of dying wanted to live as long as he could before he would end. He was, he was done during wartime. He was a soldier on dangerous missions. And so what he did was he aspired to make himself as bored as possible because the time, would, it's like, like immortality, the time would drag on. Now, so, so that's, I mean, that's the solution. There you got it. You want, you want, you want 10, your 10 minutes to last really long, put down your phone, just sit, shut up and sit there for 10 minutes. This is presumably you want to extend your, your time without being bored. I don't know what the trick of that is. That's actually, this is an interesting question. Um, I might be smoking lots of weed. Um, yeah, except if you're me, then you spend all the time in a paranoid, upset yeah, state. Yeah, I'm, I'm so. exactly the same way. That's why I can't touch it. But it, it's, you're making what I think is a very clever point, which is, you know, longevity is, is, isn't, is properly thought of not as how much your body lives, how much your body lasts, but rather the sort of length of your experiences. I mean, while we're at it, abolishing sleep, would, if it saved people a third of their lives, would give people, say, an extra 25 years. Right. Well, well the problem with that is that I think I prefer being asleep to being awake. Like it, sleeping well is one of my favorite things. Although at some, maybe at what I really, what I really mean is like being about to fall asleep, knowing that I'm tired and going to get a really good rest, I guess. And in, and in that case, it's not the sleep I'm enjoying. It's like the falling asleep. Yes. There's something very delicious about the feeling of being so tired and the sleep is right. Is right. It's not clear sleeping feels like anything itself, but w- how much would you give? And this is a complicated question for the gift to be able to put your head on your pillow and, deep sleep, and then you open up your eyes and you're fully refreshed and the second has gone by. Yeah. I mean, that would be worth, that would be worth a lot of my money. It would be. Yeah. Although I'd wonder... It would be. In a sense, there's a feeling you'd go mad without the ability to, to, to really experience the nothingness of sleep. But imagine we factor that out. No, I mean, it'd be, it'd be huge. It'd be amazing. I mean, I, I have a feeling there are some people that by how much they get done must be living that way, but, but it's not me. Okay, I, I have a few other questions uh, for you before I let you go here. One is, uh, you know, I had Nita Farahani on this podcast a few weeks ago, and she has this new book called The Battle for Your Brain, where she really impressed upon me that mind reading technology is, you know, essentially here in in certain spaces. The capacity to get an EEG scan of your brain correlated with, you know, certain words or behaviors and really read your mind to to a degree that I think most people currently don't realize is possible. And this tech is already being used in some Chinese factories where they are hooking up workers to EEG scans and being able to see via EEG signal who is, you know, slacking off essentially. Are you, have you paid much attention to this? And, and um, if so, what, what are your thoughts on mind reading technology? I haven't paid much attention to it. The mind is the brain. So there's no in principle reason why an fMRI machine or an EEG machine can't in some way capture the going on of the mind at various precisions. And there's been some clever studies, for instance, which have people look at a screen and then there's an fMRI scan 
and then it could capture in a, almost in a visual image what the person's been looking at. You could imagine conceivably being able to eavesdrop on people's dreams that way, assuming the visual cortex is, is, let, is activated in this. But I don't know. I mean, so far, these are gimmicks. They're sort of, they're, they're actually some one, I, I can't resist this wonderful case of this where people in comas who were, th- who were in locked in syndrome, I talk about this in my book, who were thought to be vegetables. And so psychologists put them in an fMRI machine and start talking to them and says, if you hear what I'm saying, imagine playing tennis. And then like then the motor cortex would light up as if you're playing. And through this way, they could communicate people in locked in syndrome. So that's sort of mind reading technology. I have tremendous spoon. When it comes to sort of dystopian things, I just, I, I think it's all possible in principle. Before I believe in the specific cases, I'd like to see sort of serious peer-reviewed articles. This area has so many people making extravagant claims, often companies, often people with a lot of uh, skin in the game. And, uh, and so I have nothing against idea in principle. In practice, I'd like to see, um, I'd like to see critical scrutiny. Okay. A few other questions here. Uh, one about mental illness. We've talked about happiness let's talk about the the other side of psychology the dark side of psychology you know it, it seems to me you know we have the the dsm manual which categorizes all of these mental illnesses you know what how do we even define a mental illness right because this is it seems like i'll just put what i what i worry about on the table one is there's a certain kind of mental illness where the the symptoms would be a detriment to any person in any society, right? Like I, re, paranoid schizophrenia, major depression, like there's no human society barring crazy thought experiments where that set of symptoms would be good for the person and good for the people around them. But when I think of something like ADHD, you know, I, I think I know people who have the symptoms of, of quote unquote ADHD, but in a, you know, in, in certain contexts, those symptoms seem to serve them very well. But you put that person, you ask that person to sit in a classroom for six hours a day and, and suddenly they're a very poor match for their environment. But then that same person becomes a brilliant musician, has no trouble focusing on something they really, uh, you know, on practicing their instruments, say and ends up having a very successful career, a, a rich social life, and no symptoms of or signs of mental illness or, or deficiency. So I, I kind of wonder, like, what is the criteria of by which we separate, let's say, like a neurodivergent, but perfectly functional type of person from someone with a quote unquote mental illness? Yeah, I talk about this in my in my second last chapter. And, and it's a it's a matter Psychologists and psychiatrists who work on a DSM and study this, they aren't dummies. So they, they sort of appreciate these are really hard problems. And so there are the things, and this is where I part company of neurodiversity and kind of agree with you, paranoid schizophrenia, major depression, bipolar disorder, uh, serious social phobia, obsessive compulsive disorder. Um, there's only things which are horrible to have. Like, I think schizophrenia is a disease like cancer. It, you know, it, it destroys people's lives. It leaves you unable to function. It leaves you at the mercy of others, dependent on others, it leaves you miserable. You know, it, it's under any notion of what an illness or disease is, it's that. But then you have all of the more difficult cases. So severe autism, 
to me is a disease like that. If somebody is just needs to be protected from harming themselves, they can't speak, they can't act in a coordinated way. But what about people with Asperger's syndrome who do speak, but they're maybe they're, they're they, they seem to act in ways that the neurotypical people view as odd or focused on routine and so on. And horrible anxiety where you can't get out of bed is terrible. But sometimes in some circumstances, a little bit of anxiety, maybe a lot of anxiety, just the thing. I quote a, an, an evolutionary psychiatrist, uh, Nessie, who says, you know, people with too much anxiety, you see them in psychiatrist office. People with too little anxiety, you see them in prisons and morgues. So, you know, so, so the right amount of, so you're right. There, this, there is, there's, and there's no, there's no simple answer. Oh, here's the cutoff. Particularly since a lot of these things are on a continuum. And, and you sort of are, we, we decide on where the cutoff is as society. And in the end, I think this is not just a psychological problem. It's sort of a moral problem and a political problem. To say, where do we say, where do we say, okay, that's just a person we don't like, a personality type we don't like. Call them a narcissist, you know, uh, call them dependent. But that doesn't make them ill. Versus when do we say now it's stepped into illness? And now your insurance company could pay for your medications. You can get treatment of this sort and so on and so forth. It's, it's a difficult problem. And, and, and then there's other issues, which is to what extent do you grant free choice a role? Like, so I think there was a debate over sex addiction. And they said, no, we're not putting that in. But alcoholism isn't. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's so interesting because like there's a part of me that says, well, who doesn't like sex, right? So how can, how can you know, like, and, and there's a famous cliche about men thinking about sex every seven seconds, which is definitely not true, but, but also directionally accurate in some way, especially, uh, you know, pubescent, uh, puberty-aged boys and, and, and so forth. But then there's another part of me that, you know, I've really, I do, I have met people that are fixated on sex to a degree where it's like half or more of their life is devoted to the direct pursuit of sex, right? And it's like, you you can't talk to this person, you can't have a conversation with this person for 10 minutes without them texting their tonight's hookup, right? It's like, and that seems to be really, really actually abnormal. And so that's, that's that's probably one of the toughest cases just because it's it's like it's something we all do want but has been taken to an extreme in that particular person so one measure which applies for these things is i'd be very unwilling to call this an addiction whatever you want to call it i mean we don't call this a mental illness or something that needs treatment if the person who's addicted is happy flourishing and does well in life okay just a different way of living you know i might say dude you think too much about sex but who am i to say on the other hand, if they're miserable, if it's destroying their lives, if they themselves seek treatment, that's kind of a different story. One thing I worry about here is, you know, like I get, I'm, I'm constantly getting these ads on Instagram for quote unquote adult ADHD. Just, you know, every other day I'm getting ads to take thesis or whatever, like whatever, some product. I haven't looked into it, but they, I, I'm, the algorithm is clearly told thesis that I'm, you know, a prospective buyer. I'm not a person that, you know, my capacity for focus, it, it can be dependent on how interested I am, but I got very good grades in school. You know, I'm, I'm by no means an ADHD candidate, I, I think, but I do feel constantly distracted, right? I, f I like almost everyone I talk to feel constantly distracted. I Welcome go to, to my computer. Century. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I go to my computer to do one thing and my fingers type in Twitter before even I, I've decided to do anything. And it's 20 minutes later and I meant to respond to that email. That's the whole point 
of why I came to my laptop and I still haven't done it. So that happens to me regularly. And I feel, you know, I, I worry about the incentives of this because there's a lot of profit and money to be made in convincing someone like me that I have this thing called adult onset ADHD. And it's not social media and smartphones. It's just, you know, it's just something I have and I need to be medicated and I need to pay someone for these meds. And, um, you know, I worry about that phenomenon right now that we're convincing people they have mental illnesses that are really just a product of the way society is, is structured. There seems to be two separate questions here. One question is, uh, I got it, it should review what you have as an illness because you're distracted by Twitter. This seems pretty, pretty plainly not. What about a kid who can't sit still for, for eight hours straight? in a classroom. Same, same deal. This is not what we're, this is, these are weird things the world imposes upon you. And then they call you ill if you can't do it. This sounds weird. So I kind of agree with you. I think there's different cases in schizophrenia, depression, so on. But here's the second question. Suppose it wasn't framed in terms of an illness. Suppose somebody was offering you these pills. You want to increase your focus? Take these pills. There, I don't, I know some people have a moral objection to people using medications to get better in some way. I don't quite have it. When I'm sleepy, I drink coffee. When I want to get relaxed, I drink whiskey. If I was to add some sort of Adderall to the mix, I'm not sure there's anything inherently wrong with it. No, I don't think so either. I, I mean, I think if you don't object to caffeine, um, you shouldn't object to re really, in principle, any other drug. But I think often maybe that objection can mask the fact that so few drugs work for lots of people, right? Like caffeine seems to work for like most people. The side effects are not so bad relative to what it gives you. Adderall I've done many times, but I don't do it because the for me, the, the come downs are so bad. I become very irritable and very short tempered. And it should, that's, it's absolutely not worth the focus that it gives me. Yeah. So let's see if I have any questions for you before I, I let you go. I guess I have one, one last question because, because you are a psychologist and this, this question is very interesting to me from a psychological perspective is this, this concept of social contagion, right? And this is, this is um, most talked about now with respect to the issue of uh, transgender identity, uh, but it's actually much larger than that. It's just a general phenomenon, right? You have instances where a whole school will get hiccups, right? At the same time, and they'll see if it's the water supply or, uh, or something else. And it just turns out that it's spread via social contagion, right? And it's not a biological cause. You have, there was an Atlantic article last year about TikTok Tourette's. Did you see this? Yeah. So it was a, just an outbreak of Tourette's-like symptoms and doctors were racking their brains trying to f find out what has caused this sudden uptick in Tourette's. And it just turns out all their new Tourette's patients followed TikTok influencers that had Tourette's and who made these very compelling videos letting the world in on their Tourette's symptoms. Very interesting content. But then gets wrapped up in all these influencers having millions of followers and kids wanting to be like them. And this goes back to the very beginning of our conversation, the, the unconscious mind. The kids coming into the doctors with Tourette's, they weren't putting it on in a sense. They weren't frauds. It was, they really felt they were having these symptoms. But upon closer examination, if they're, if they're made to realize that it's a product of the TikTok, the symptoms actually can go away. Yeah, the symptoms can go away like if, if they're made to realize that they're, 
the path their path to, the path to their symptoms is not the same as the path to that that a typical Tourette's patient would have. So I'm curious if social contagion is something you as a psychologist have looked into. If you have any general commentary about it as a phenomenon, and if you have looked into it at all with respect to the issue of the the uptick in transgender identity among teenagers, especially girls. I haven't at all. It's just I, I know a lot of people are talking about that, but I haven't I haven't looked at that at all. I more generally. Um, I'm very interested. I study moral psychology and a uh, sense of right and wrong, different aspects of behavior in children and adults. And th- th- there's an extremely important and maybe rather obvious insight, which is we're social creatures. We pick up in a million ways what other people do. And, and we're focused on one of two things. Either if everybody's doing it, we'll do it. You know, have, you just put... you. If you're in a place where people are talking in a certain way or walking in a certain way, pretty soon, if you're a normal person, you'll start doing that yourself. It's just, and if you know it or not. And then the second thing you focus on above and beyond the groups is status. And this is the, the TikTok people, which is that if there's people you recognize as high status, you'll be driven to copy them and emulate them. Now, to me, it's an open question to Tourette's or whatever, to what extent you could explain it in those terms or other terms. But the idea that we are very, very, that we, that Social activities are contagious. Everything from COVID masking to wearing a hat seems to be, you know, a, a, an undeniable truth about our minds. All right. Uh, Paul Bloom, thank you so much for coming on my show. And once again, the book is called Psych. And I highly recommend it to anyone interested in the human mind, which is probably everyone listening. Besides that, is there anywhere else that my listeners should go to follow your work or your musings or anything else? I got a website at paulbloom.net and uh, a Twitter, Paul Bloom at Yale. Even though after tweeting a lot recently, my Twitter account has not gone up. So I'm blaming this on Elon Musk. Yeah. I don't see your tweets. I think I follow you. There we go. I'm shadow banned. Don't end on that. (laughs) Yeah. Perfect. Perfect. All right. Thank you, Paul. Thanks a lot. Great talking with you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Conversations with Coleman. If you enjoyed it, be sure to follow me on social media and subscribe to my podcast to stay up to date on all my latest content. If you really want to support me, consider becoming a member of Coleman Unfiltered for exclusive access to subscriber-only content. Thanks again for listening and see you next time.